This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, come warm yourself by the fire. You are among friends. Although you may not need a fire where you are, it's been unseasonably warm. Just about, uh, well, many places uh, up along the, uh, the northeastern seaboard. Thanks to El Nino for that. Uh, Victor Vigiani is the executive director of Zealand News Network. He is here, and we'll speak to him in just a moment. And Kathleen Marden, uh, also standing by on the phone. Uh, she is a leading UFO researcher and author, and the niece of Betty and Barney Hill, uh, the principals involved in unquestionably the most famous alien abduction case in history. Uh, we'll talk about that, and uh, she's done a tremendous amount of uh, research into the abduction phenomena. So we'll get to all of that in just a moment. Uh, Albert Vinzel, of course, is here running our HOA, our Hangout on Air. And if you want to stream this radio extravaganza live on YouTube, just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, at Richard Serrett, S as in Simon, Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T at Richard Serrett, and go to the top or near the top of the Twitter feed, and there you'll find the HOA link in great big bold caps, HOA. Just click on it, and you're in. And you can see me and Victor uh, here in studio, and you might even catch a glimpse of uh, Albert occasionally. Uh, while you're on uh, the website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, please go to the live events page. Uh, because on Sunday, April the 17th, I'm bringing Pulitzer Prize nominee, Nobel Prize nominee, Daniel Estulin, best-selling author of The True Story of the Bilderbergs, bringing Daniel to the uh, University of Toronto for an exclusive event called The Bilderbergs. And uh, you'll get to see the Canadian premiere of his new documentary film, Bilderberg, the movie, and then following the film, Daniel will give a 90-minute presentation on the Bilderbergs, uh, which will include a question-and-answer period, and then that will all be followed by a book signing. So, 
That's the Bilderbergs, Sunday, April the 17th. That's a Strange Planet production, and tickets are available online at the website, strangeplanet.ca. Go to the live events page. Uh, But you can also buy the tickets in-store at Conspiracy Culture, uh, over the phone or online. Uh, So for more information, go to conspiracyculture.com. Now, uh, we lost Edgar Mitchell a few days ago the sixth man to walk on the moon, and he was, he just, he passed, uh, it was virtually on the eve of the 45th anniversary of the Apollo 14 mission. And Mitchell, um, uh, needless to say, was one of the most outspoken, if not the most outspoken of all of the Apollo astronauts in terms of UFOs and ETs and uh, uh, disclosure and so forth. And Edgar, of course, was very involved in, in, um, in the disclosure movement, 85, uh, passed away after I, what I understand was a fairly lengthy illness at a hospice uh, in, in southwest Florida. So let me uh, first grab a, a quick reaction on the passing of Edgar Mitchell here from Victor Vigiani, but uh, let me introduce Victor first. He is, of course, a regular contributor to The Conspiracy Show, one of Canada's leading ufologists and UFO ET disclosure advocates. He's the director of Zeland News Network, a news service dedicated to the compilation, distribution, and analysis of news relating to the UFO ET phenomenon. Victor, welcome once again. How are you, my friend? As always, just great to be here. Just uh, fantastic. All right. The, the, uh, the passing of, yeah. uh, of Edgar Mitchell. Yeah. A sad day. A sad day. Um, it, there's really no words you can actually put to it because the, 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 the fellow was a very... Um, and a very demanding individual. I, I, I knew him, spoke to him, and he was the kind of person who uh, really meant what he said. I mean, there was no pulling ed punches with Edgar ever. He never didn't, didn't suffer fools lately. Not a lot. He said, "If you if you want to talk to me, make sure it's worth my while." You know, kind of thing. Uh, very, very much so. All the uh, you know. Well, and why was that? Was that because in later years he was maybe sort of the mistreatment he received yeah. from the mainstream media, beaten down. That's right. And and also, too, of NASA, the, the, the lawsuit that he was involved with uh, with NASA, that also really beat him down Because he lot. was he was gifted. NASA gave him the camera that That's he right. took to the moon, mm-hmm. and then he gifted that to the Smithsonian, and mm-hmm. I believe he also gave a moon rock That's correct. to the Smithsonian, yeah. 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 and they, they sued him. That's right. <laughs> What, what kind of, what kind of, uh, that's, it's amazing. In any case, uh, he was a man that I think, in my estimation, really made certain issues come to the forefront, you know, regardless of, of, of what he's saying, how he's saying it. You've got to ask yourself the question, why would a man jeopardize his, his entire career to come out and say some of, only some of the things that he, that he did say about the extraterrestrial presence? I mean, he, he had to have a reason for it. This is not just someone spouting off he had a good reason to talk about it, and the question is why. And will that message be, you know, taken any further in, in terms of where he got the information from and what importance he attached to things like consciousness? He was into a lot of that towards the end of his end of his life, the whole development of the, the telepathic nature of who we are as beings, that right. kind of thing. Right. So he, he moved on from just the basic tenets of the, the UFO ET issue. He moved forward. And I think that was a big step, too, um, in him being recognized as somebody. But let's give this all just a little bit of thought here, you know. I'm wondering, maybe hoping, mm-hmm. uh, that there may be more coming from Edgar Mitchell, perhaps from the grave. Do you think it's possible there are some unreleased memoirs out there where he will 
leave us with a little something more? I mean, he, he certainly left mm-hmm. a lot on the table. Mm-hmm. He, he, you know, oh, he, sure. he talked a lot about the issue, but I'm, I'm guessing that he probably held some things back. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Uh, so, some of the meetings that he's, that he's uh, alleged to have attended with, uh, you know, senior people in, in, in Congress and even in the Pentagon, he's reported to have met with people in the Pentagon. Now, I don't know how anyone could completely substantiate that, but... Um, that was one of the issues that was raised, but who he met with. So you either cast doubt on it or you look forward as to what it might have been, you know, what issues are being raised by that meeting, if any. So um, it all begs the question that it's something that we have to talk about. We have to bring forward and not sort of keep in the, ba- in the bottom drawer. And that's, that's what he was doing. He was really making you table these issues in rational conversation rather than say, no, you can't talk about that anymore or at all. Definitely, the um, the disclosure movement has lost a very credible um, yeah. voice and, and a real pillar. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should also mention before we welcome Kathleen Martin to the program the Alien Cosmic Expo, which is uh, happening in my old stomping grounds, uh, Brantford, Ontario, this coming June. And um, um, you were kind enough to uh, ask me to participate along with uh, the event organizer, the ACE organizer, mm-hmm. uh, Joanne Eady. Uh, just to tell, tell people a little bit about uh, the Alien Cosmic Expo coming up. Well, myself and uh, a colleague, Bob Mitchell, uh, we are handling the Saturday part of, the, of that weekend. Uh, the Friday part of it is for uh, experiencers. There's going to be a number of uh, guests come to the, to the conference and um, not present necessarily, but just be there to have an interchange of people who want to talk to them. about. It's not really speeches or presentations. It's just people who have uh, had abduction experience are coming together just to say, you know, let's just chat. Kind of, there's going to be a dinner and all of that. So it's, it's going to be a, a rather informal event. And then the Saturday, uh, Bob Mitchell and I are trying to put together a journalist panel to uh, throw questions at probably five or six of the most influential uh, UFO advocates on the planet. I'll say that again, on the planet. So um, that thing on the Saturday is going to be a very, very important part of trying to get at journalism in taking some commitment to look at this issue from whatever perspective they want to. You're trying to almost uh, mirror the the citizens' hearings that took place in Washington, but instead of former members of Congress, you will have members of the press. Precisely. Uh, And then they will have access to ask questions to people like Richard Dolan and Daniel Sheehan. Uh, and as you say, some of the, the top... Paul Hellyer. Paul Hellyer. And I will be moderating. That's right, yes. So we're trying to set up a situation where, um, I don't know if anyone uh, can you know, say that they've seen all the citizen hearings panels, but if you get a glimpse of, let's say, three or four minutes of, of how they handle the format of it, it was brilliant. It was, it was historical. It's great footage. And what we're trying to do is replicate that. And we make no apologies for that at all. We're doing this with journalists now who we feel have access to conduits of information that politicians don't have. And that's, I think, one of the things that did not happen as a result of the, uh, the citizen hearings. It didn't go full force. So what's the next step? People who are, in, who are into information, who have a skeptical notion about what this is all about. We don't want any believers on this panel. 
We don't. We want people to just say no. Listen, right. I, I, I'm not buying this. Convince me. Right. So that's who we want to show up and and, and ask the questions. So they'll be confronted by, or at least uh, brought along with, as you said, uh, probably the the this five or six leading experts on the planet with respect to every single issue across the board, from missile shutdowns to sightings to documents, you name it. They'll have it covered, especially uh, with Danny Sheehan and the Vatican information that's coming forward from him out of the University of. Uh, uh, I believe it's California, Berkeley. Right, right. Yeah, big news there. All right, so that's the Alien Cosmic Expo. That's June 24th, 25th, 26th, uh, 2016. AlienCosmicExpo.com is the website, and that's being held at the Best Western uh, Brant Park Inn mm-hmm. in uh, Brantford, Ontario. Beautiful town. Hope to see you all out there. All right, uh, let's get to the uh, the main entree, shall we? Kathleen Martin is a leading UFO and abduction researcher, author, lecturer. Her educational background in the social sciences has shaped her interest in scientific ufology. Extensive research and investigation into alien abduction has convinced her that some abductions are real. She earned a BA degree in social work from the University of New Hampshire and participated in graduate studies in education while working as a teacher and education services coordinator. Her scholarship led to acceptance into the Alpha Kappa Delta Sociology Honor Society. During her 15 years as an educator, she innovated, designed, and implemented model educational programs. She's also had a supervisory position coordinating, training, and evaluating education staff. Her interest in UFOs dates back to September 20th, 1961, when her aunt, Betty Hill, phoned her childhood home to report that she and Barney had encountered a flying saucer in New Hampshire's White Mountains. A primary witness to the evidence of the UFO encounter and the aftermath, Kathleen has intimate knowledge of the Hill's biographical histories, investigation files, and scientific interest in their sensational experience. This led to a journey of exploration, leaving no stone unturned. To find answers through scholarly work, investigation, and social research, she is recognized as the world's leading expert on the Betty and Barney Hill abduction. She's written three books, Captured, The Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, and Science Was Wrong, with nuclear physicist, scientific ufologist Stanton T. Friedman, and The Alien Abduction Files with Denise Stoner. In addition to this, her essays have been published in several additional books, and in 2012, she spearheaded an extensive research project with Denise Stoner to identify little-known commonalities among experiencers. She's currently working on two research projects, MUFON's Experiencer Survey and Free's Experiencer Questionnaire. Kathleen Martin, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Thank you, and great to be with you this evening. I'm doing well. Excellent, and say hello to uh, Victor Vigiani here in studio as well. Hello, Victor. Hello, hello, Kathleen. Great to have you with us. Thanks. Well, Kathleen, I've, I've just um, managed to introduce you in time to, uh, to head into a break here, so uh, apologies for that, but I wanted to, to get you on the air. Say hello. Looking forward to this conversation immensely, uh, and when we come back, we'll, uh, we'll talk about Betty and Barney. Are you good for that? I am. All right. You stand by, Kathleen. Victor as well. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network is in studio. And joining us on the phone is Kathleen Marden, uh, the niece of Betty and Barney Hill, the unquestionably the most famous alien abduction case in history, going back to, uh, well, September 19th through, uh, well, two days uh, back in 1961, starting on September the 19th. And um, uh, Kathleen, again, welcome to the program. And sorry we uh, I interrupted, uh, introduced you, and then we had to break away. But here we are. Time is tight. Um, let's just give people a, a very quick, for those hard to believe, there may be some that don't know about Betty and Barney Hill, just a real quick timeline. Um, rural New Hampshire, September of 1961. Um, what, what, what happened? Betty and Barney Hill were returning home from a short vacation to Niagara Falls in Montreal. They were driving at night when uh, they had a close encounter with a UFO. It came so close that Barney had to stop the car. Uh, It was hovering directly above them, over the road, descending to within about 100 feet of their vehicle. He got out of the car, and when he did... The craft um, shifted location to an adjacent field. He walked toward it, looked up at it, used through binoculars, and observed figures that he had conscious, continuous recall of, and he said that they were somehow not human. He was so frightened, so startled by all of this, that he ran back to the car screaming to my aunt that they had to get out of there uh, the craft followed him back. He was speeding down the highway. There were buzzing sounds bouncing off the trunk of the vehicle that caused the car to vibrate and a tingling sensation to pass through their bodies. The next thing they knew, they were 35 miles down the road. They felt as if only a moment had passed. They had vague memories of observing a fiery orb in the road and a roadblock somewhere. They didn't know when or where it occurred. They drove on home, and when they arrived, they found that the tops of Barney's best dress shoes were so deeply scraped, he had to buy new shoes. Betty's dress was torn in several locations. There was a two-inch tear at the top of the zipper in the zipper fabric, a one-inch tear in the thick zipper fabric, a... uh, the hem was torn down on one side, the lining was torn from waist to hemline, there were shiny spots on the trunk of the car that caused a compass to spin and spin, indicating that there was a magnetic field around the trunk of the car. The watches they were wearing that night never ran again. My aunt and uncle were distressed She was curious. My uncle was more distressed than Betty because he had observed these non-humans. He uh, was very fearful that he was going to be captured. And eventually, uh, his health deteriorated. Uh, He ended up taking a leave of absence from his job at the post office. And that is when 
he began to see a psychiatrist uh, who believed that he had made a very good adjustment to his life in New Hampshire. He didn't seem to have a lot of problems there. The problems seemed to revolve around the sighting and the amnesia, apparently, that he had uh, related to this. And he referred him to Dr. Benjamin Simon, who was a renowned psychiatrist in Boston, Massachusetts. He, ben Simon had worked during World War II with veterans who were returning from the front, who were suffering from what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder. He was very successful in treating them through deep trance hypnosis, and this is what he used with Barney. Betty also went along for that office visit and indicated that she would like to be hypnotized because she also did not have memories, although she did not suffer the level of trauma that Barney did. Dr. Simon hypnotized the two of them separately over a period of six months. He reinstated amnesia at the end of each session, and in the end, he let them listen to the hypnosis tapes as they were, were walked worked through the emotional trauma that they had experienced. And in the end, they both relived the same experience of being abducted by these non-humans that Barney had observed in that field. Only it was several miles down the road. They were given very strange physical examinations and then released essentially unharmed except for the emotional trauma. And at, at what point did was it was it your aunt that called and talked to you at, at at a certain point? When did you first hear about it? Did you speak to her? Um, I spoke to her within two days. Two days. My aunt okay. Betty called my mother. Right. I was thirteen years old. I had arrived home from school in the afternoon. This was on the afternoon of September twentieth. Uh, the uh, observation of the UFO occurred at a. A little before midnight on September 19th, the abduction was a little after midnight on the 20th. They then drove home, and uh, Betty phoned my mother uh, because she was very concerned about uh, possible exposure to radiation. And we had a neighbor who was a physicist. Betty wanted some information about what uh, she and Barney should do. They had taken long showers. They had left uh, the food they were carrying and their clothing out on the porch. They just didn't know what to do. And so they wanted some advice. That is when I first heard about this story. But my family traveled to Betty's and Barney's home a couple of days later. And that's when I had the opportunity to absor- uh, observe some of the physical evidence. Uh, including the shiny spots on the trunk of their vehicle. All right, I'm going to turn uh, over to my colleague, uh, Victor Vigiani. Go ahead, Victor. Yes, great to have you with us, Kathleen. Uh, Just a question about the dress. Um, It it sort of fascinates me in in the area of, I guess you would call it forensics, uh, I I guess for lack of a better word, in in the sense that there was a substance on the dress or that was ripped in a certain way and that this substance had some effect on the the fabric of the dress that it eventually turned it into a rag of sorts. Uh, Was there any forensic information about that rather strange case? I mean, where else would she get something like that from? It just it's just very bizarre. Yes, it, it was highly unusual. Uh, the be- the dress um, developed a pink powdery substance that seemed to grow on the dress. Betty had placed it in her closet, knowing that it had to be repaired. The next time she took it out, it was covered with this pink powdery substance. 
She took it out. She hung it on her clothesline, and the pink powder blew away. But uh, then she took it inside and realized that the dress had been reduced for, to a rag. She considered throwing it into the trash, decided not to do that because she thought that perhaps one day scientists would be able to identify what that pink powder was. Now, the first analysis was done in 1972 at the University of Cincinnati. They um, used a number of different methods uh, in the chemistry department to try to create that pink appearance, uh, to uh, examine uh, chemically exactly what the pink powder was. They were unsuccessful in doing that, but they felt that it was uh, highly unusual uh, for it to be on the dress. Those are the same findings that have been found over and over again among the five lab, uh, laboratories that have analyzed Betty's dress. And there was one uh, seed soil assay uh, test that was done. And what they did in that is they ground up uh, pieces of Betty's dress, some with the pink powder, some on the part of the dress that was still blue, and uh, they soaked that in uh, beakers of water or vials of water, the pink in one, the blue in the other, and then plain water. They watered seedlings uh, with that. And what they ended up discovering is that the seedlings that were watered with the dress that the pink powdery substance had been soaked in uh, grew at an extraordinarily fast rate. So everyone says that there is something highly unusual about that pink powdery substance. No one has ever been able to identify what it is. There's speculation that it might be uh, a yeast or a fungus that deposited on the dress and fed off whatever uh, might have landed on her dress inside that spacecraft that she was on. What about um, the, the, the contrasting levels of information here are fascinating. There's, there, there's the whole forensic idea that, that's behind what you've uh, just described to us. But there's also another factor here, and you indicate in some of your studies that the telepathic abilities of certain people who are taken um, are recognized in a certain way, or there seems to be a telepathic component as to how they're being communicated with and to. Um, in contrast to the forensic stuff, how, how does that telepathic thing happen? What, what's going on there? All I can say is that uh, the vast majority of experiencers have said that uh, in, in the, the quantitative analysis that Denise Stoner and I did, that uh, communication up aboard the craft with these non-human entities uh, was telepathic in nature that Betty and Barney actually described that to Dr. Simon uh, separately under hypnosis. And what they had to say about it was that, uh, well, Barney had his eyes closed, and he said that to him it seemed like someone uh, was speaking to him, uh, but uh, his eyes were closed. Betty said that... uh, he, she sort of had that effect, but there was no movement of the mouth when this was occurring. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kathleen, the, the hypnosis sessions, um, I mean, how much of that 
information were you privy to? Uh, and in other words, how much were they, B- Biddy and Barney, talking to you and the rest of the family about what was divulged in the hypnosis sessions? Or did that come out much later after, let's say, the Boston Traveler article in 65 when, when the publicity around this case really started to kick into high gear? When Betty and Barney were being permitted to recall uh, what they had stated under hypnosis uh, in Dr. Simon's office, and this would have been late spring, uh, early summer of 1964, they would stop at my grandparents' house on their way home from Boston. And uh, they lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Dr. Simon's office was in Boston. And um, on the way home, they would discuss what Dr. Simon had permitted them to remember. I grew up across the street from my grandparents, so I was always there and privy to that information. But I knew that I was not permitted to tell anyone else. This was a secret that had to be retained within the family uh, because of the consequences to Betty and Barney if it were released to the public. They were active in community affairs. Uh, Barney was uh, appointed to the state of New Hampshire's U.S. Civil Rights Commission's uh, state, state Advisory Committee. She was a social worker in the state. So there would have been uh, social and economic consequences if this story ever came out. But I was privy to that. And then in 1996, Betty actually gave me a copy of the hypnosis tapes for comparative analysis, I wanted to line up Betty's statements against Barney's statements. Uh, I wanted to study their communication style, uh, their, the way that they described uh, things that they saw. And uh, starting from the beginning of their trip all the way through uh, their hypnosis sessions about their abduction, the time that they were on the craft, uh, in order to determine whether or not uh, this experience of an abduction actually did occur, and, uh, or if, uh, as Dr. Simon had speculated, Betty was only reliving a dream or a series of dreams she had, and that Barney had somehow absorbed the information from those dreams and had repeated it, only to a lesser degree. Uh, Very interesting, but I discovered that Betty and Barney independently made correlating statements that were not in Betty's dreams. Ah, interesting. And this occurred many times. It's in the book, Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. And uh, so that is what convinced me that it probably was a real abduction. All right, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and continue to discuss the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case with Kathleen Martin and Victor Vigiani. Back with more. Stay with us. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 
416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Kathleen Martin on the phone. Her website, Kathleen with a K, Kathleen hyphen Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N dot com. Kathleen hyphen Marden dot com. We're talking about the uh, Betty and Barney Hill abduction case, her aunt and uncle. And uh, Kathleen is the author of Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. She's also written Science Was Wrong with nuclear physicist, uh, ufologist Stanton Friedman, and The Alien Abduction Files with Denise Stoner, Victor Vigiani in studio from Zeland News Network. Now, I wanted to ask you, Kathleen, so this is 1964. You're a young teenager, maybe 16, and you're hearing this, what, you know, from your aunt, your aunt uh, Betty, what happened uh, I mean, it's one thing to, for a teenager to hear that stuff now because we are immersed in this whole UFO uh, culture. Uh, but this is almost unheard of in 1964, and you're hearing this as a 16-year-old. That must have, I mean, to say the least, totally rocked your world. I mean, just pulled the pulled the rug from out under your feet. I mean, how do you remember how you reacted when you when you were hearing this for the first time? This experience. It was absolutely startling and frightening, but I was fascinated by what I was hearing. Did it you was be- just did, incredible? And you, was your f- first reaction to believe to believe her, or to think something else must have gone on? So there must be some other explanation. My reaction was to absolutely believe her. I had no reason to disbelieve what my aunt and uncle were saying. They were honest people. They were curious. They had gone to Dr. Simon in order to find out what had caused uh, the problems that they had had, what had created the physical effects that uh, they had found when they arrived home. And so this was the unraveling of a mystery. It was being solved. So the idea um, that this happened is, is intriguing to me. Uh, the one thing that really does intrigue me, uh, Kathleen, is all this information. Is this brand new information, things we haven't heard before ever, uh, you know, complete revelations? Or, and, or why is it taking so long for some of these incredibly intricate, uh, you know, bits of information you've come forward with? I mean, this is, this is hot stuff in terms of what this abduction case really, really means in, in the long run. How, how come it took so long? It absolutely is, and and the first book that was written on the topic was The Interrupted Journey, and it was published in 1966, but uh, back in those days, uh, there there was a great deal of concern about uh, shocking the public, frightening the public, and so it was written very, very conservatively. Uh, the evidence had not been evaluated at that time. Remember, this was the first abduction that ever occurred, uh, and not a, a lot of weight was placed upon any of this mm-hmm. physical evidence at this time. Do you, do you think and, there's a, a component here, and you've probably done just as much work on this as I have, if not more, but this whole idea of this experience being familial in terms of mother and daughter or you know, father and son, it, it does run in families, if I could use that, that rather inadequate term. Yes, yes, you're absolutely correct that uh, my research has borne that out as well. 
Uh, and I remember years ago when Dr. James Harder, that might be a familiar name to you, he uh, yes. worked with uh, APRO. He was um, a civil engineering professor at um, University of California at Berkeley and had worked with many of the early experiencers and was out working with Betty and uh, had met the entire family. And that was one of the questions that he had for us, if we had had this type of experience as well, as if we had observed UFOs as well. You know, it just it just fascinates me that uh, the long chronology of all this is is um, sort of coming to almost reinvent the whole experience because uh, some of the information has come forward recently in terms of people kind of wanting their own gratification about this issue and having gone through something and they're sort of uh, stepping into the limelight. It's been my understanding that most people who have this experience want absolutely no notoriety at all. So how do you see this new evolution of of uh, how it's being interpreted publicly? Well, I think that we have two things going on here. We have uh, people who are professional people, people who have uh, good jobs, who uh, are not stepping forward. They uh, are speaking to people like myself uh, under a condition of confidentiality. I've worked with uh, military officers, with airline pilots, with medical doctors. Uh, it, this uh, spans the population in, with regard to educational background, economic background, religious beliefs. And uh, so we have that side of it. On the other side, we have uh, the disclosure movement among experiencers who are wanting to step out and to tell the public that they are experiencers. And some of this is problematic. I personally encourage experiencers to go to support groups because it's very, very important to uh, discuss this with others who are having the same experience just for the emotional support of doing so and, and because it's emotionally cleansing. All right, we'll uh, take a time out, uh, Kathleen. Stay with us. Victor Vigiani in studio as well from Zeland News Network. More on the Betty and Barney Hill abduction when the Conspiracy Show returns. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Kathleen Martin is with us. Noted UFO researcher, author, the niece of Betty and Barney Hill, the most famous abduction case in history, alien abduction case. Just a, a few more points on some of the physical evidence. I did, I did want to ask you, uh, Kathleen, uh, about the star map. And uh, under hypnosis, uh, Simon 
I guess, gave Betty this post-hypnotic suggestion that she would be able to sketch the star map that she had described seeing when she saw it on the ship. I guess it was, she described it as being kind of a hologram. Uh, and um, eventually she was able to to sketch this star map or the star system. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I can. Um, you are absolutely correct. She did go home, and over the next couple of weeks, she was able to sketch that. Uh, it was published in the first book that was written, The Interrupted Journey, and Marjorie Fish, a brilliant woman from Ohio, uh, saw it in the book. She uh, was an amateur astronomer. She was skeptical about it. But she decided to begin to construct models of our local galactic neighborhood out 55 light years to see if she could find a match. Initially, she thought she would find many. And uh, she faced great difficulty in doing this because she had to go to the university and um, use their catalogs at the university. She couldn't check them out. She had to copy the distance data, and then she had to return to her home. Uh, there were no computers then, so uh, or no home computers. So she was uh, constructing three-dimensional models using beads of different sizes and colors uh, to represent different stars and monofilament line. And uh, in one of these uh, maps, and, and she did 26 models in all, but in one of these models, she had 253 stars in their proper location in our galaxy. And she still had not found a match. You can imagine how frustrating it must have been to do all of that research and build all of those models and never find a match. But then a new catalog was released, and uh, it had different distance data for three of the stars on that map. And she moved them around, and then she had a perfect match for the, uh, the stars that Betty had sketched. And can you tell us a little bit about the star system? Yes. Well, the star system that she thought the uh, ETs had come from was uh, Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli. Uh, they're in the constellation, the net. Uh, they can be viewed from the southern hemisphere. And uh, they're about uh, 39 and a half light years away from us. Uh, they are fairly close together, but many scientists say that they are still able to, uh, or should be able to, uh, have planets orbiting around them in a stable orbit. So uh, very exciting news, if true. Betty's map had uh, a, t a total of five different lines um, running back and forth between those two stars, and that would indicate that they traveled back and forth to the, each other's system frequently. There were two lines uh, going up to the sun, uh, which would mean that also it was uh, an expedition, a place that they would would go to on a regular route. There were also dotted lines on on the map of places that they did not go to as frequently. I wonder if you could uh, comment too, 
it is long before this was an established kind of understanding of what people actually saw as far as beings was concerned. This, this was long before any of our current perceptions were, were in play. And uh, I think, I'm not sure which one of them spoke about the description, whether it was uh, uh, Betty or Barney, about having black eyes and slits for mouths and no ears and all the typical things that we know of today. But what was their feeling of, of discovering this for the very first time, or had it ever been reported before? It had not been reported before, and uh, Barney was the one who had the most detailed recall. And I think a lot of that came from the fact that he had actually observed them and had conscious continuous recall for that observation when he saw them on the craft. Um, uh, but also remembered them, they both remembered them, uh, when their car stalled and these beings were standing in the road. And uh, even before hypnosis began, Barney, uh, in what amounted to a great emotional release in my childhood home, as we were uh, attempting to help him to remember what had happened, uh, talking him through, you know, what happened next and what happened next, he stated that they did not walk like humans, that they had very spindly legs and spindly arms. He remembered that part consciously. Then under hypnosis, he remembered that they were uh, kind of an aluminum, bluish, kind of grayish color, um, no uh, external ear, a very, very tiny bump for a nose, very large eyes, but uh, rather than being entirely black, they could see a little bit of yellow. Uh, around the outside of the eye, uh, completely hairless heads uh, were larger in proportion to the bodies than humans are, and uh, just uh, constructed very differently than we are. Uh, they had sort of barrel chests, which were uh, quite large and round in comparison to the the very thin arms and legs that they had. Uh, Barney died in 1969. Uh, I believe it was a brain aneurysm. Yes. Uh, your aunt lived until 2004, lived to a, a ripe old age. Um, now, uh, Barney would have passed away before, you know, again, I talked about the, the, um, this UFO culture uh, that we are now immersed in. Uh, in popular culture. Uh, but Betty certainly lived long enough to see that. And I'm wondering, towards the end of her life, when you talk to her, how she then, I guess, through the prism of the pop culture interpretation of the whole UFO, abduction, ETs, the X-Files, um, I mean, how she saw her own abduction uh, a case through that prism. Betty... Uh, felt very pleased that uh, she had had the opportunity to to meet what she called astronauts from another planet. However, the stories that she was hearing from so many uh, dozens of experiencers who were coming uh, forward at that time were somewhat different than her own. Uh, she f always said, well, she felt that the the individuals that she met were sentient beings, that they were, uh, it was like talking to another human, except for, of course, they're, physiologically, they were 
very different. Their appearance was different in the way they communicated was different. But uh, they were not uh, frail little waifs, uh, is one thing that she said. And uh, she, she was highly skeptical about some of the claims that were being made. And I think that a lot of it had to do with her knowledge of science and somehow she couldn't get beyond the idea that these uh, beings were able to travel to this planet, but but for some reason she thought that they should have been um, stuck in 20th century uh, technology in terms of their uh, ability, for example, to move human beings. She said that uh, anyone uh, who claimed to have been passed through a solid surface, such as a ceiling or a window, as, as so many experiencers uh, say has happened, uh, she did not believe any of this. Well, that's she interesting. Said if anybody said to her that that happened to them, she'd ask them for the cost of the repair in the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one last quick uh, question from you, Victor. I, I just It just fascinates me once again. Would they have any kind of, um, uh, I guess, barometer by which to kind of compare this experience? Um, I think you and I both know, and we've done enough work in this area, that very rarely does, does anyone, or even two people at a time, get abducted only once, if I could use the crass term. Uh, it's a multiple set of experiences from what I understand, or is that just sort of, uh, this is a sort of one-off kind of case? Very few people are abducted only one time. And I do not believe that Betty was abducted only one time, mm. as she said. Um, I have uh, quite thoroughly gone through all of her files as the trustee of her estate and um, and uh, also for material for that I used to, to write the book, Captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. And I have found uh, many instances where I suspect that Betty was actually taken again. And in one of those, for example, she and um, her friend were returning home from a visit to my grandparents' house, and uh, there was a UFO that came down. It uh, was flying beside their vehicle, and then uh, it flew over the top. And Betty, in her memoirs, wrote that they could feel the car lift up into the air, and then they realized it was being uh, put back down on the ground, maybe three or four miles ahead of where they had been at that time. And, uh, but she was not willing to entertain the idea that she was ever taken more than one time. Wow. Uh, Kathleen Martin, I want to thank you for, uh, for joining us tonight. Uh, a very uh, eye-opening conversation. I appreciate your time. And it's uh, Kathleen-Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N, Com, Kathleen-Martin.com. Thanks again, Kathleen. Pleasure to be with you. Okay. Well, Victor. Well, Victor. What do you make of that? 
Well, you can't help but wonder all the new information. It's like a new prism is put on the whole situation as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it really, especially with the idea that uh, you know, the familial aspect of it and then the multiple numbers of times that, uh, that she said that it could have happened before, or at least once before, it brings a new clarity to the whole situation. It's not just a one-shot deal. Right. And, uh, and thank goodness, for all of our sakes, mm-hmm. that uh, uh, Betty and Barney reached out to their niece uh, because now uh, she's become this repository for all of this information. Of course, the tapes... And all of Betty's, uh, you know, notes and so forth are available uh, at the uh, the University of New Hampshire, which is very interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That a that an that an academic institution like that would would accept those kind of files. That, yeah. those kind of files. Wow. Interesting, yeah. fascinating case. All right, uh, my website strangeplanet.ca. Check it out. Also, say hi on Twitter at Richard Serrett, and as always, follow the truth. Listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your taxi cab, RV camper, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. 
A special how-do to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, broadcasting out of Toronto, Canada, and the Liberty Village neighborhood. 50,000 watts of peace and love, baby. Uh, All of you listening in on one of our growing roster of affiliates in the United States and Canada. All of you listening, of course, on the Conspiracy Show app and the Zoomer Radio app, both free downloads uh, and very, very cool. I should mention. Uh, And of course, the podcasts available at iTunes, uh, TuneIn.com, Stitcher Radio, and TalkZone.com. All right, we are doing open lines again tonight. Uh, I promised at the beginning of the year I'd be doing more open lines. We did open lines last week and we had a terrific response. And so we're going to do it again tonight. Uh, And uh, a lot more often, not every week. Not every week, but at least once a month. Uh, So let me give you the phone numbers right out of the gate. 416-360-0740. That's in the greater Toronto area. 416-360-0740. And toll free from just about anywhere. 1-866-740-4740. Again, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. That's open lines for the entire hour. Now, I do have some company here in studio. Of course, Albert is uh, here running our HOA. Uh, and let me remind you, if you want to join the other uh, live stream, just go to the uh, Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T. Go to the top of the feed, and you'll find a link there for the HOA. Just click on it, and you can join us in studio here. Uh, and there's Albert on camera. Say hello on camera there, Albert. No, he's shy. All right, he just brought in some water. Uh, Albert is the elusive one. Uh, and also, of course, uh, with us tonight, we have uh, Ian and Jamie on the other side of the glass, twisting the knobs and dials. Uh, but I do have one more uh, gentleman sitting here. And um, you should know that outside of the staff here on the program, uh, there are there's not even a handful, less than a handful, I guess... Uh, you could count the fingers on the hand of a carnival ride operator. Uh, that would tell you how many, how exclusive this club is, how many people actually are, in, are allowed to set foot in the studio outside of staff. Uh, and one of them is our good friend, the executive director of Zealand News Network, uh, Victor Vigiani. And he's here just because, just because you're, you're such great company, Victor. How are you? Just to be with you is great. Uh, and it's nice to be seen. Well, you know, normally we're, we're, uh, we're in here when we're talking about uh, UFOs and mm-hmm. ETs, but we're going to do open lines, and I thought it'd be fun for you to jo- join in. And, and uh, you know, you just sit back. If you want to feel the call with me sure. and weigh in, please do. Uh, otherwise, just sit back and enjoy your lemon water. Of course, the, the new infusion idea, All right. whatever they call it. I'm not quite sure. I've been told to drink a lot of it. Well, uh, so we, we'll open up the phone lines, and people, again, uh, if, if you're new to the program... We talk conspiracies, we talk uh, geopolitics, we talk paranormal, we talk UFOs, of course, and Victor is here, uh, and that's his bailiwick. But um, while we're waiting for the phones to light up, and I have no uh, doubt that they will, um, let's just get another... uh, We talked briefly before about uh, the passing of uh, Apollo 14 astronaut, the sixth man to walk on the moon, just left us Edgar Mitchell at the age of 85, and um, uh, very outspoken. Um, a lot of Apollo astronauts 
were very media shy, let's say, and I, you know, people can argue whether they were sworn to secrecy or whether they were threatened or, uh, but what what was it about Edgar Mitchell? Do you think he was fearless? Uh, wouldn't suffer fools li- lightly, but he he just said it the way he he saw it, and and he was convinced that uh, there's an ET presence here on Earth, and he announced that he got that from the top, Pentagon officials. What was it about Edgar Mitchell that that made him so fearless? Do you think? Well. I- I think that anyone who's trained as a pilot, um, and that's what he was initially, it's it's important to understand that when you're trained, your flight training involves becoming steely-eyed about everything. You know, everything is has to be just exactly right for for flight to take take place in, in whatever kind of aircraft. And the amount of intellectual acuity and precision that you require to do that is extremely complex to follow these jets or even some of the older planes. You just you just don't hop in one and just do it. You have to have a certain mindset. And I think um, Edgar took that mindset into the black and white area of what this issue was all about. As a pilot, it was either true or not true. It, he didn't waffle in between. He said, I've seen enough, I know enough, and I've heard enough, and I've been through enough to say, this is real. Take my word for it, and I don't want to argue with you about it, please. And, and um, I don't know if you can answer this, but you, you met him, you talked to him. I, I'm, I talked to him on one occasion many years ago on the radio, and we didn't get into this, but how was he... I'm guessing there, you know, there is this fraternity, and I don't know how much communication there was with him and Neil Armstrong and, and, uh, or Buzz Aldrin and, and some of the others, Shepard, who was with them on the Apollo 14 mission. Uh, and he was the last survivor of the Apollo 14 mission. But how, do you, how did he get on with the likes of a Buzz Aldrin and, or a Neil Armstrong? From my understanding, not well. Mm. There was an open conflict. But they really questioned, especially uh, when they were doing something uh, around the moon and not necessarily on it while they were orbiting. Um, they really criticized Edgar for his attempts at telepathic communication. There was something that he wanted to prove about the interconnectedness of all, of all matter. And he thought that when he was in space that he could attempt to try to do this. And I'm not sure with whatever degree of success he, he came up with at the time. But the fact of the matter that an astronaut would actually raise that kind of possibility that's totally thinking out of the box, that was Edgar. So I think that he was driven to do things that nobody else did. Was he uh, disappointed? Uh, I mean, he, would, he was on this um, – um, he was in the U.K. at the time, I think, when he, when he first dropped the uh, – you know, this – yeah, right. bomb about, you know, I've received word from Pentagon officials, ETs are real, they're interacting, yeah. and so forth. And there, of course, was a media frenzy that lasted about 10 minutes, and then nothing. Um, was he, do you think, bitter about that, or did he anticipate that that's the way it would work out? Did um, he think that, you yeah. know, I'm Edgar mm-hmm. Mitchell, I'm the sixth man yeah. that walked on the moon, I'm yeah. telling you this, yeah. and yet yeah. he was like, yeah, I think that did uh, did upset him. I know it even angered him that that um, uh, that he would bring forward as a respected uh, person in the military ranks and, uh, and out of out of NASA too. I mean, the the amount of secrecy that he was involved in and in saying, "Here, do this, do it at this time. Don't say this, say this," and the constrictions were incredible for him to come out and do this kind of thing is totally out of the mold as far as I'm concerned. And uh, he really went out of his way to say, "Listen, I'm not going to speak." Uh, in terms of something that is um, the party line. He hated the party line. He couldn't stand what NASA was doing to this whole question of repressing the information. And it wasn't just his information either. The, 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 you know, the, the, the blurred out uh, you know, uh, configurations on the moon, 
He saw that he knows that that happened consistently. They, they have people admitting that they blurred these things out with airbrushing. They did it consistently. Now, why? What's the point behind all? Edgar just raised the issue, and he kept on raising it to a point of, of, um, of total credibility as far as I'm concerned. I don't know what his state of mind was at the end. Uh, I understand he was ill for some time. He was 85, passed away in a, in a hospice. Um, I'm guessing, though, you know, obviously at that age, you, you, you know the end is coming. Um, are you expecting maybe this isn't the last we've heard from Edgar Mitchell? Maybe, I mean, let's face it, we, we all would love to have had him name names. There was unnamed officials at the Pentagon. Um, you know, we, you and I have talked mm-hmm. about uh, with, uh, with the Honorable Paul Hellyer, his communication with an unnamed um, military person in the United States who said everything you've heard about Roswell and more is true. We don't have names. Do you think, do you think it's possible that, that, that Mitchell, there was a deathbed confession, that he jotted it down someplace, it's in a safety deposit box? I'm, I'm convinced that um, Edgar, being the person that he, that he was in terms of his record-keeping and all the things that he had to keep in line, I have no doubt that things are written down. and there, there, there are names there. And whoever's going to be able to bring those things forward, like much like the situation of, of uh, the abduction case with Benny and Barney Hill, that there's new information coming out about that. How long will it be before the new information, according to Edgar Mitchell, actually comes out? So it's, all, it's going to be a wave of information. And I'm hoping that that wave could take place soon enough so that some of the military people that are involved right now that can see that this man wasn't talking through his hat that he's not the only one. And there are other people within NASA who want this information out in some way, or at least let's talk about it. And I think um, Edgar was the, was, the, um, was the leading edge of that, of that inquiry, of, of that kind of questioning of, the, of authority. And so others will take over. And so I don't think we've heard the last of them. All right. We are doing open lines on The Conspiracy Show. Again, let me give you the numbers. 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. And that is in the uh, greater Toronto area. And toll free from just about anywhere. one 866 740 Four seven forty one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Ask me anything. Ask Victor anything. Again, keeping in mind sort of the parameters of the program. We talk conspiracies, paranormal, supernatural, metaphysical. If you want to talk free energy, if you want to talk geopolitics, UFOs, ETs, we are game for that. All right, let's begin with uh, Mark, who's joining us in uh, Southern Maryland this morning. Mark, good morning yeah. and welcome. Good morning, and thank you, Richard. Thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. I've been to you for a few years now, and always liked your sign-off when you'd say, move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming over. And uh, one night you didn't say it, and then I tuned to Coast to Coast, which comes on at 1 Eastern, and there you were as guest host. And I said, oh, that's why he didn't say it. But I wondered, <laughs> how, did, how did she feel about not having to move over? Did she like the extra space, or does she miss you on those long nights? <laughs> Well, uh, sometimes I, I actually uh, I run out of time on this program, and I give the truncated uh, extra, uh, which you know I, I thank Albert and uh, Ian, and then it's just like uh, good night. And uh, she notices uh, off if she's still awake, she'll notice. So I get a little bit of an, an elbow across the uh, uh, across <laughs> the bed just to let me know she was listening, and I didn't sign off uh, properly. But I, I no, but you were uh, you didn't come home for another. 
another four hours. That's right. When I'm doing coast, coast, coast. when I'm doing coast, I get home. Uh, it's almost six o'clock in the morning. So, and she's mm-hmm. getting ready to get up and get the, uh, the little ones off to school. So, well, I really have been enjoying your program over the years, and uh, I, I'm very sorry that we lost Ed Mitchell. And uh, I send my condolences to his family. I'm very grateful for what he did do in the time he was with us. Mark, thank you so much for checking in from Southern Maryland. It's a, uh, it's a beautiful state. And uh, call again sometime. All right, open lines will continue on the other, other side, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Oh, uh, let me just uh, talk to you for a second. Albert, my producer, just I'm going to put you on notice. I'm going to ask you, uh, because we have The Conspiracy Show app, and uh, people can submit questions and comments... So let me get you to, uh, to dig into the, uh, the app there, and, and uh, I'll come back to you in a, in a few moments, and you can give us some questions and comments. So if you haven't downloaded it, it's a free app uh, from the Google Store and uh, iTunes. Uh, just search The Conspiracy Show, uh, and you can take us with you wherever you go. Also, the Zoomer Radio app, of course, which is uh, terrific. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's really retro-looking uh, for those of you who remember transistor radios. So when you... Uh, open up the app, your iPhone or your smartphone transforms into an old transistor radio. It's really cool. That's the Zoomer radio app. Uh, I wanted to, to mention coming up next week on the program, uh, first of all, next week, uh, sort of do, doing double duty, I'll be on uh, Coast to Coast, uh, but I'll also be doing this program. And uh, John Rappaport from nomorefakenews.com uh, will be with us, a medical uh, investigative reporter for nearly four decades, nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, I believe that was, uh, his name was forwarded or submitted, nominated by the LA Times for a piece he did back in the early 80s. Terrific writer, terrific journalist, investigator, toiled in the mainstream for many years until he became uh, disillusioned uh, with them and perhaps they with he with him. Um, and now is... Um, well, he's a regular uh, on this show, has appeared on my television show many times, and he's going to talk about the, the Zika virus. Now, if you listen to the World Health Organization, uh, this thing is spreading like wildfire. And uh, they're saying it's putting millions of people at risk, and of course it's supposedly, uh, well, no, it is. It's, it, the Zika virus is transmitted through a, a, a mosquito, an infected mosquito. Uh, but somehow, along the way, uh, although... We've, we first heard about the Zika virus back in the late 40s. It's been around for a long time, folks. This isn't some new thing. It's been with us for 70 years and probably well before that. But the first, I guess, cases were reported about 70 years ago. And up until that time, it, it really didn't cause much interest because it was – the symptoms are very mild. You might get a rash. You might get a little uh, you know, ache in the joints. And then – 
two or three days, it's gone. All right? That's what we know about the Zika virus for the last 70 years. Not a big whoop. All of a sudden, now we're being told that the Zika virus is responsible for something called microcephaly, which is uh, a birth defect. Babies being born with smaller heads and uh, a brain impairment. I'm not quite sure how they made that connection between the Zika virus and microcephaly. Uh, Anyway, John Rappaport will be here next week, and he and I uh, were on the phone earlier just sort of swapping notes and so forth, as I often do to prep for an interview. And John Rappaport, I tell you, he's going to drop some bombs. You want to be listening to this program. He'll also be on with me uh, on Coast to Coast. Uh, it's, it's, I tell you, it's not, we're not getting the full story is what I'm saying. The World Health Organization, uh, as they have been known to do from time to time, is really hyping this thing up. And uh, now comes word that um, this biotech firm, Oxitech, which is based in the UK, They have a scheme, a plan to battle the Zika virus. And what they want to do, well, what they have developed is a genetically modified mosquito. And they want to unleash armies of these gene-hacked skitters into the Brazilian jungle. And what will happen is they will mate with the, the native mosquitoes in Brazil, including those that are supposedly carrying the Zika virus. So they're not going to fight the Zika carriers. They're going to make love, not war, essentially. And the, um, the gene that these modified mosquitoes are carrying will be transferred to their offspring after mating with the wild versions. And this gene causes the young mosquitoes, the offspring, to die before they reach reproductive age. So it's almost like the Monsanto Terminator seed. Here's the thing. Sounds great, right? We all hate mosquitoes. They've tested this in other locations in Latin America and Asia. These genetically modified mosquitoes are so effective, they reduce populations of wild mosquitoes by, get this, 90%. 90%. Is that a good thing? On first blush, you might say, sure, I'm out there barbecuing. I can't stand mosquitoes. They're a nuisance. Think about the ecological imbalance, the vacuum in the food chain, for example, that would create. 90% of mosquitoes gone. Seems to me like the uh, cure in this case might be worse than the disease. So stay tuned. Next week, John Rappaport on this program from No More Fake News for an update on the, uh, the Zika virus scare the Zika virus hoax, he's calling it. All right, 416-360-0740. Maybe you'd like to comment on that. 416-360-0740, toll free from out of town, one 740 Victor Vigiani is uh, riding shotgun with me tonight, the executive director from Zealand News Network, which is a, a news service dedicated to all things uh, relating to the UFO ET phenomenon. And uh, Victor, uh, 
Why don't you tell people how they can uh, find Z-Land? Yeah, it basically, it's, uh, it's very simple. We don't have a, uh, a long, complicated URL or anything like that. If you just Google Z-Land Communications, Z-L-A-N-D, and the word communications, you'll come up with us as number one and number two. Pretty simple to latch on to and go there and you can look at our, our um, complete web page. It outlines the, the current issues of the day. Um, there's a bit of his, historical perspective in terms of uh, you know, military officials, statements, documents, etc. So it's, it's, it's deep and rich of it with information about just sort of a, a UFO 101 kind of thing. If you want to know what's really current and going on, um, the Zealand Communications news site is one of, I think, being biased, of course, is one of the best that isolates the issues with clarity and, and really provides people with, a, with an array of information to connect the dots and not say to depend on one bit of information. It's a collective of information that we're looking at. And our news blog kind of does that too with the press releases that we do. All right. Um, we should mention also coming up in June, the Alien Cosmic Expo mm-hmm. in Brantford, June 24, 25, and 26. That's and that's correct. the best Western that's right. uh, in Brantford. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joanne Eady, uh, the one of the principal organizers. And then you've also been asked uh, to organize an event that's happening on the Saturday that's going to involve a panel of uh, the top UFO disclosure advocates, researchers, people like Richard Dolan, Bob Mitchell, Daniel Sheehan, uh, and Nick, others. Yeah. Nick Pope. Uh, Nick Pope. Uh, who's who? I mean, all, this is going to be the UFO ET event of 2016 in Brantford, uh, but also uh, a panel of journalists. Six journalists, you're hoping? That's what we're shooting for, yeah. Okay, and I'm going to be moderating mm-hmm. the panel. Yeah. What, so what, what do you hope is going to come out of or arise from this panel discussion with journalists? These are mainstream journalists. These are That's we're debunkers, for. skeptics, mm-hmm. hard-boiled debunkers, yeah, really. Yeah. yeah, we don't want anybody sort of uh, on the panel who's a committed person one way or another. We want people to be open-minded just to be able to listen to the information for, for once without any regard with it being filtered uh, through other kinds of media. Hear it. Let's hear it from the sources. Let's hear it from the evidence. Uh, let's hear it from everything that co- is combined that makes this issue what it is in terms of a journalistic approach to say, listen, we can no longer avoid not talking about this issue. We have to talk we have to talk about it publicly. And you as the journalist in charge of the flow of that information or at least the, the quality of that information, you have responsibility to open up the discussion about this so everybody can talk about it in a rational way. There's a lot of stuff that's inconsistent in the information granted. But there's a lot of stuff that's very, very consistent within the converging lines of evidence. So we are convinced that it's the journalist community community has a responsibility to come together to say, let's start talking about this. It'll be interesting because I know you're going to send out a lot of uh, invites and you're going to, hopefully you're going to have six mainstream media journalists sitting Mm -hmm. across from these uh, UFO researchers Mm -hmm. at the top. I mean, Dolan, Nick Pope, as we mentioned, the top of the top. Mm -hmm. Uh, This will be historic. I don't think this has ever happened, at least in Canada. Not to my knowledge, ever before. There's been no investigation like this in, in, in this real format. It's not a mock format. And I guess that's the biggest difference between us and, and uh, what Stephen Bassett has, did. Uh, his was a mock hearing. And it moved, the, it moved the ball up the hill a lot in terms of its credibility, the way it got the information out. It captured people's attention. What we want to do is do it with journalists. 
because the political people that were in charge of sort of asking all the questions, they were essentially illiterate in terms of what they knew about the whole issue. And their capacity or their political capital, I think, was overestimated in terms of hearing the information and doing something tangible about it. Right. They were unable to do that. Their consensus was only a statement to the UN, and that's as far as it went. So that's really unfortunate. So what we want to do is take the ball the rest of the way and get some people who are good writers, good broadcasters, good thinkers to say, yeah, okay, I'll cover that. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see which six journalists you end up with um, because that's going to be for them. Let's face it, there is a cultural bias within mainstream media. Uh, it's, It's nothing so overt as an editor coming down to them and saying, you're not going to report on this. It doesn't happen that way. Uh, it's 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 a self-imposed, I believe, cultural bias. They know the old saying, which side of the bread the butter is buttered. Um, so they just, they're, you can have to drag some of them maybe kicking and screaming. But hopefully, you know, you're going to get some that are, they're willing to take that step and say, all right, all right. I'll, I'll give it a shot. And probably in their mind, they're saying, oh, this is going to be fun. Right, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Well, but, I, yeah, the, the idea of what, that you're saying is that it's, it takes a risk. Yes. There's going to have to be a few people who are willing to take this kind of risk, and we think we've isolated the ones we want. Right. At least the target anyways. And have them come forward and say, no, you know what? This is really not worth my time, and watch it. i got like 16 columns to write for this newspaper. I'm freelancing doing this. Why do I need to do, to do you know, this kind of thing? What, what, right. are you, what are you asking me to do? Speak the truth for you? I said, no, let's just listen and talk together about this. Right. Don't make any pre, uh, you know, pre-assumptions about what's going on. Just listen. You're going to get five or six of the most incredibly intelligent people sitting before you that no one else on the planet is going to get the opportunity to do. No. We're going to give it to you. We're right. going to give it to you as media people. And 99% of, of journalists in mainstream media haven't – and that's being conservative. It's probably closer mm-hmm. to 999 have not done 10 minutes worth of research – into this field. So it'll be interesting to see once they're exposed to, you know, just a little, a little thread of this information, how they're going to, how it's going to. When, when they hear Nick Pope describe the Rendlesham Forest incident mm-hmm. with the certainty that only Nick has, and you've, you've heard yes. Nick speak before, he has a way of articulating an event in, such, in, a, in a way that his, his description of it is so clear and it's so, you know, sequential and factual You'd have that one heck of a time doing any kind of research to refute anything that he says. And like this information flows, there are inconsistencies, but there are also several, many more right. converging lines of evidence that proves that something went on. Or when, or when Richard Dolan, uh, uh, this guy was almost a Rhodes Scholar, uh, but he is a very credible historian. When he starts rhyming off government documents, like a laundry list of government documents... Yeah. That 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 uh, show the U.S. government is aware, is concerned about UFOs. How are they going to react to that? Because they're not; they don't know any of this stuff. That's right. And I think that that's a really good question that we're grappling with. How are we going to put this information forward? So what we've tried to do is look at each speaker and say, what is particular speakers, or at least let's call them a witness. Okay, that's what we're planning to do. What does this witness have to offer? What's the the best goods? What give, give me your best ten minutes on this? you know, Nick Pope or whoever. And then the panel will ask them questions. Now, we haven't figured out the sequence of all that, but giving each person a specific topic, 
Nick would be doing rounds from Forest, for example. Okay, and I would like Richard to address the missile shutdown issue along with the breakaway civilization. But that's just sort of my own thinking about this. So each person has a very discreet area. At the, the Rockefeller Initiative through Grant Cameron, that has to be talked about. These people have to know these letters. Hundreds and hundreds of letters were exchanged you know, in the White House with John Podesta and all. They don't know any of this. No, it'll be interesting. All right, that's Jan, uh, June 24, 25, 26. That's the Alien Cosmic Expo in uh, Brantford. Uh, I'll be moderating uh, the, the panel that Victor just mentioned. All right, uh, Sarah is in Toronto. Sarah, welcome. Hi. <clears throat> Hello. Hi there. Hi, great show. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering, I have a theory on this uh, virus. Is it a possibility, uh, Mr. Gates... Um, is very much into birth control into the third world in Africa and other countries. Is this a way to frighten women from getting pregnant and from maybe controlling population through this virus? I mean, they're saying to everybody, don't get pregnant for at least three years, don't do this. Could this be a very Machiavellian way of trying to covertly uh, uh, depopulate well, parts w- of w- Africa. W- and the reason I say that is because watched a program of how they sterilized uh, Mexican uh, women in the late 60s and 70s without their knowledge. They would give birth, and then they would have them sign a document right there on the table as they gave birth to be sterilized, and they didn't know what they were signing. Um, so I, I wonder, I mean, deviousness progresses also just as other things progress in our society. What is your opinion on that? Well, the short answer is yes. This is a, is a very a devilishly brilliant method of uh, depopulation. And when you hear John Rappaport next week, he'll, he'll address that. But here's uh, an interesting connection. There is, a, I mentioned Oxitec. This is the biotech firm in the UK that is genetically modifying these mosquitoes uh, to breed with the infected uh, mosquitoes in Brazil. And they will uh, produce offspring that will die before they, they reach reproductive age, which means it's, they're like a terminator seed. So this could reduce the, the um, mosquito population by 90%. So that's the Oxitech firm that's doing this. There is a connection, I am told, uh, between Oxitech uh, and uh, Bill and Melinda Gates and uh, in terms of funding and so forth. So, uh, But you'll have to tune in next week to get the rest of that. Well, just one more thing. Wouldn't it be interesting if the um, if the uh, plutocrats would like to turn Africa into their own little uh, paradise again? Well, here's the interesting thing: you don't need a vaccine, you don't need a pill, um, you don't need um, war or drought uh, to bring about this type of depopulation. It's you just scare people, and it's having an effect already. Mm-hmm. All right, thanks for the call. Got to run. Got a commercial uh, to take care of, and uh, back on the other side, open lines and. Uh, more of my conversation with Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
Open lines, 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, and toll-free 1-866-740-4740, 866-740-4740. I mentioned the Conspiracy Show app, the free download, uh, and it's it's a remarkable app. It's a very powerful tool. It allows you to do a lot more than just listen to previous shows and stream the present show. Um, you can uh, you can upload uh, questions, comments. You can even create your own polls. You can up, up, uh, upload photographs. Uh, anyway, I wanted to work in uh, Albert here. Uh, Albert, if uh, if you can dip into the Conspiracy Show app, and uh, are, there, are there some questions, comments there? Yeah, we got a bunch of polls up, and they're from listeners. And the first one is, do you think the Zika virus in mosquitoes is a biological weapon? And the results are 69% yes, 31% no. Hmm. So so they, most, the majority by far thinks it is a biological weapon. All right. And then the next question was to our first guest, are you willing to be abducted? And it's an even split, 50% yes, 50% no. That's a an, that's an very interesting poll question. Would you be willing to be abducted? 50-50. And someone added a comment who voted, and their comment is, uh, been there and it's not much fun, have Stan Romanek on the show. Ah, yes, Stan Romanek. Let me ask you, Albert, would you be interested in being abducted? Would you be a willing... I, what I got from the first interview is that there is a psychic alien connection, and, and I think that's a step forward in evolution. So, so I think, like, Earth is, like, the lowest planet you could be on, and, like, the next planet, would they would all be psychic. So, so I think the aliens are trying to give us a boost in evolution. All right. So I would be yes. I would vote yes. Wow. Uh, Victor? Would you be willing to be abducted? If I had a choice? Yes. Okay. Your money or your life. Uh, um, <laughs> I'm thinking it over. <laughs> I, I would not. Uh, if I could pick my captors, maybe yes, but uh, I'd like to go through something. But, you know, it, it would be a real long shot to say, yes, I'm committed to it. I, I'd be frightened. I really would be. You know, there's no doubt about it. Although I'd like the, the, the experience that some people have had. It seems to be enervating and rather positive, but there's also been some pretty dastardly stuff that's going on, so I don't know if I could uh, consent to all that. Yeah, uh, my word, not, not in your life. Mm-hmm. Not in your life would I go willingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't share the, uh, your enthusiasm, uh, Albert. I mean, even Betty, uh, Betty Hill's account under hypnosis, I mean, she was in agony. She, uh, they had to stop the, uh, the, re- the regression at certain points for her to recover. Crying, uh, she was absolutely tormented. Uh, that's not something I would want to go through. Uh, let me get a show of hands in the other room. Um, Ian, would you, would you, would you want to be abducted? He's shaking his head. Yes. And Jamie, no. All right. There's your 50, 50. I guess. <laughs> Almost. All right. 416-360-0740, Open lines until the, uh, the end of the program. And uh, next week, I mentioned John Rappaport coming up. Also, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigative uh, reporter, uh, will be with us as she, uh, she joins us at this time every month. Now, Rosemary uh, has just been involved. She's a board member of this um, uh, foundation that's also investigating uh, extraterrestrial encounters and so forth. And they've just completed the first three phases of a four-phase survey, a global survey, 
uh, they have uh, something like 2,700 respondents, and these are lengthy online um, uh, interviews. The website is experiencer.org, experiencer.org, and she'll be uh, here to tell us about some of those results. And uh, I'll just give you a little, uh, a little uh, taste of it. One of the things that, that, uh, that came forward from this result, uh, from this survey, global survey, uh, was that most people who talked about, and it's not limited to uh, uh, alien contactees, it's the whole gambit, everything from near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, past-life experiences or past-life recollections, um, ghost sightings, UFO sightings, and abductions. Uh, but mo- for most respondents, it was a positive experience. Um, now, what does that say? How do they vet these respondents? I don't know. Uh, I'm guessing that if you had a negative response or a negative experience, you'd probably be loath to talk about it with anybody. So that may, you know, taint the results. However, Rose- Rosemary Ellen Guiley will be along uh, to talk about that. Uh, Victor, you and I were uh, were chatting about uh, this upcoming alien. Uh, Alien Cosmic Expo in Brantford and the uh, the, mm-hmm. the panel that I'll be moderating right. and you're organizing with uh, some of the top UFO researchers, disclosure advocates, Nick Pope, uh, Grant Cameron, Richard Dolan, Paul Hellyer, Steve Bassett. Steve Bassett. I mean, the who's who. And they'll be uh, fielding questions from mainstream media journalists. And we're talking, trying to struggle or figure out the... Um, what it is that prevents the mainstream media from getting into this topic uh, or investigating it. Well, I want to discuss that a little bit further when we come back, and we'll also take some calls as we uh, enjoy our night of open lines here on a Super Bowl Sunday. The Conspiracy Show, back with more and your calls in a moment. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Wondering if anyone out there has, um, along the uh, eastern seaboard, New York, New Jersey, experienced any of these sonic booms uh, over the last couple of weeks? There were at least 10 sonic booms that were reported uh, back, well, all in one day, January 28th, uh, from southern New Jersey along the east coast of Long Island, New York. And uh, this is according to U.S. uh, scientists uh, with the Geological Survey. Uh, So you had the first sonic boom in the uh, 1.20 in the afternoon, about two miles uh, northeast of Hamilton, New Jersey, and then a second one south of Trenton, um, about an hour and a half later. And... uh, there are, a sonic boom essentially occurs when you have an object or an ex, it could be an explosion and they tr- it travels faster than the speed of light, which is 761 miles per hour uh, at sea level. 
the speed of sound. Yes, thank you, Victor Vigiani. So, send, and they, it sends out a shock wave that also travels faster than sound. Um, the thing is, the um, the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration and the North American Aerospace Defense Command both have confirmed they didn't have any planes operating nearby that could have generated these sonic booms. So they remain a complete mystery. And there were no explosions. I mean, if there were explosions, someone would have seen it. Um, And uh, officials have also ruled out NASA's Wallops Flight Facility on Wallops Island in Virginia uh, because they routinely launch small rockets and and jet test flights from its uh, eastern shore site. Uh, But there were no rocket launches or jet flights that occurred at the NASA Center on that particular day. So how to explain these 10 sonic booms along uh, Long Island, New Jersey? It's a mystery. It's a mystery. All right. Uh, let's say hello to Maureen in Barrie, Ontario. Maureen, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hi. I uh, wanted to ask you if you know anyone who's doing any uh, work research into a connection between deja vu and time travel. The reason I'm asking is because when I have deja vu, I experience it different. It's not a feeling. It's like I know I've been through this experience before, and I even know what's going to happen for the next couple of seconds. Interesting. Well, uh, I'm curious as to why you would make the association between deja vu and time travel rather than, let's say, deja vu and a past life. I mean... Because... because, uh, um, okay, this is a little bit long, but uh, a few months ago I was watching a, a show, I can't remember what the name of it was, it had David Tennant in it, it was the Americanized version of a show called Broadchurch. And um, I had watched it the one night, and I happened to turn it on to the British station, Broadchurch was on, they were playing the exact same episode, only with the British version, but it was to the point where they were using the same dialogue and everything. Right. And it hit me then, okay, this is a memory. Like, the deja vu is not a feeling of having experienced something. It's a memory that I have. Right. A memory. Right. As in a, in a, so, as in a previous... No, 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 no. Not a previous life. No. Okay. No, no. That's a whole different... I, I've had a previous life experience, so... All and right. that's a, a whole different thing. I can tell exactly what's going to happen. Uh, one time I was talking on the phone with my daughter, and um, she said, went to say something, and I said it. And she says, oh, how'd you know that? Said, I've lived this before. I know it. Just that one little split of time. Right. Well, it's like... I- a, a shard of memory. It's very powerful. On the rare occasions it's, it's happened to me, it is very powerful. Um, I mean, maybe it speaks more to our innate psychic abilities. Who knows? I mean, I, I've heard ridiculous explanations for deja vu. One scientist tried to explain it as the minute difference in the length of the optical nerves between the left and the right eye. In other words, <laughs> one eye is receiving information a nanosecond before the other. Uh, however, that doesn't explain why blind people also experience uh, deja yeah. vu. It's a, it's you know, it's one of my f- it's favorite topics. Uh, you know, uh, 
uh, time warps and, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, deja vu. It's fascinating. I'm sure someone has written a book about deja vu and time travel or done some research. Marie Jones, um, who's uh, a good friend and has been on the program many times, has written about deja vu. So uh, you might want to check out her book. Okay. Marie Jones. Maureen, huh? thank you so much. Great to talk to okay. you. <laughs> thank you. Have a good night. You too, thanks. Bye. All right. Robert is in Etobicoke this morning. Robert, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy right. Show. Good morning, uh, Richard. How are you? Doing a good show there. Thank you. Yeah. What, what, I, what I want to share with you is that um, these mosquitoes, GMO mosquitoes, are already being released in the Cayman Islands. I don't know if you're aware of that. Oh, these genetically modified uh, mosquitoes. Yeah. Well, I, I know that they've done some tests. I wasn't, they weren't specific about the location, but I know they've done tests. So they've released them in the Cayman Islands. Oh, from 2009 they've been doing there. If you, if you research in the Mosquito Research Control Unit, it's, it's called a MRCU. Okay. Yeah. What were they trying to eradicate? Oh, the, the Aedes aegypti mosquito. Oh, oh. Because it, 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 it's the dengue fever. Oh, the dengue fever, yes. Yeah, that's yes. what they're saying. But and what did it do to the native mosquito population in the, in the Cayman Islands? Oh, it, it said it, it, it reduced it by 80%. That's what they're saying. But this was done without any knowledge. The public didn't have any knowledge of this when they, when they, when they, when they released it there. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. this is where it was first done in the world. Is GMO mosquito Oxitec did it there? Yes, Oxitec. Okay, yeah, and, and that was in the Cayman Islands in two thousand and nine. Yeah, two thousand and nine. They didn't have much. I think it was in two batch. Two batches did. Okay. In two thousand and nine, and then they did it. And so they essentially have decimated the native mosquito population. Yeah, that's what they're saying. And they release about three million, three point three million. That's what they said. They release at that. Time. All right. Well, thank you for that update, Robert. That's a, a great piece yeah. of information. But also, you know, you know, uh, I don't know if you know that in in Brazil, in Brazil, as uh, that area that these these things break out as the largest mosquito plant in the world. The largest what plant? Mosquito plant. A mosquito plant. Yeah. What do you mean by well, a mosquito plant? Oh, this this same Oxitec company has it there. It is called Mark. M-O-S-C-A-M-E-D, Moscomed. Oxitec is operating in Brazil, and they have a plant there that is producing these genetically modified mosquitoes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I and didn't know that. they released some there, and they released some in, 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 in Malaysia also. Interesting, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they released some in, 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 in Malaysia, and, and then they're, they're now in, 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 in Brazil. You understand? All right. Well, um, you know, the... What we're hearing from the world, uh, Robert, thank you for the call. What we're hearing from uh, the World Health Organization, and um, and uh, I think there's a sort of an equivalent, a Pan-American health organization, is something like 4,000 confirmed cases of this microcephaly. However, uh, on the ground in Brazil, Brazilian health officials are saying, no, it's more like 400 confirmed. And yet this 4,000 number is still being bandied about in the mainstream media. Now, 400 cases of microcephaly uh, in a population of 200 million, which is roughly the population of Brazil, that is not unusual, I'm told. And I've done a little research into this. Uh, for example, the number of cases in, uh, I think, North America uh, in, in a 12-month period isn't too far off of that. 
and they're not linking that to the Zika virus. There are many causes, potential causes for microcephaly, and yet they've made this leap, Lord knows how, uh, between the Zika virus, which again, we've known about since 1947. Nobody paid much attention to it because it's, you know, it's pretty minor. One in five people that get infected with the Zika virus or get bitten by an infected mosquito will develop any symptoms. So that one in five will have a rash, maybe some minor uh, achy joints, and then in two or three days, it's over. It's done. Uh, And now we're being told it's responsible for microcephaly, and uh, women are being told not to get pregnant for the next two or three years. And women returning from South America are now frantic because maybe they're in the early stages of, of, uh, of a pregnancy, do not qualify for a Zika virus test here. And now they're thinking, oh, what should I do? What should I do? John Rappaport, you don't want to miss that program next week. Uh, Victor Vigiani, we just have a few moments mm-hmm. from uh, Zeland News Network. We were, we've been talking throughout the course of the evening about uh, the... This is an area that's very near and dear to you. This mm-hmm. is, I think, the, you're, you're, you're the focus of a lot of your work. And that is why the mainstream media, media the journalists, don't give the UFO issue the, the due that it deserves? Why don't they do the research? And I think it's a cultural bias. Is there something else at play here? Oh, I think there's, uh, there's a lot of different kind of biases that happen. Um, you're right. I, I call it the glass ceiling. You'll, you'll look at the information the way it comes out. A lot of um, two, three, four hundred uh, what you'd call uh, minor regional news organizations will cover an issue like the UFO issue. They will cover it. And they'll do it in their own way. They'll show a, f- a video. They'll have some commentary. There's always that little snicker. Uh, some take it seriously. Some are flippant towards it. But the fact of the matter is it's as far as it goes. It never makes it beyond the glass ceiling to the big boys or the big operators like Reuters, like uh, Associated Press, CBS, Time Warner. It won't make those lists of, of things they're going to talk about. So that ceiling is imposed by a whole different series of people both in, intel- in the intelligence community, that are, they have a long history in, in controlling information. The CIA has done it masterfully since, uh, since 1969, maybe even sooner. So we can see the intelligence agency is in charge of the dissemination of information. And not only its dissemination, like we talked earlier, this Hegelian uh, dialectic that happens, create a problem, let the problem you know, simmer on the back burner for a little while, make it intense, and then within X amount of time, you just provide a solution. And you can do that militarily, you can do that with disease control, you can do it with the weather. They've got this down to an art. And I think people need to wake up to be aware of what the nature of the wool is that's being pulled over their eyes in terms right. of how information flows. So in, so in many respects, the, the, um, the grunts that are toiling in the vineyards of mainstream media, they're being led by their nose. Look over here. Look over here. Right. Come and follow and, and report on this story. Now look over here. And, you know, whether it's uh, the Zika virus or it's the water skiing squirrel, yes. uh, you know, they wake up every morning, they have their marching orders. and uh, That's right. It's the carousel of information. Mm. I don't know if you've seen one of the, the Toronto newspapers lately about the, the, the trial that's going on in Toronto with this radio star. Uh, yes. And, and it's, it's occupying everybody's brains. It's a long, and then it's the Super Bowl. And then it's uh, why Jennifer Aston didn't get a part of this movie or that movie. Right. You keep the carousel moving. You keep people dizzy enough so they can't pay attention to the real issues. And therefore, they can't swallow it. 
They just can't. They can't do it. But recently, we had uh, the uh, the Guelph Mercury newspapers um, stop uh, publication. Uh, we had a, a newspaper out in British Columbia, one of the uh, in Nanaimo. Mm -hmm. No more um, uh, print version of the newspaper. These newspapers are dying on the vine. They're laying off people. They're continuing online, but they haven't figured out a way to monetize that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, at what point did? Will they understand that they are not talking about the things that matter to most people? Yeah. I mean, if, they, if, if a newspaper were to dedicate a section to the UFOET issue and talk about recent sightings and just cover it in a very matter-of-fact kind of MUFON type approach, I'm not talking about, you know, exopolitics. Yeah. I think they'd be doing themselves and their readers a service. It'll be the next boom in media, guaranteed, and they'll have to start the presses up again in that newspaper close to our hearts where they've stopped their, their printing presses, they're selling them, they're getting rid of them. That's right. co-opting out the, uh, uh, the printing of the, of the newspaper. Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network, thank you for this. Always a pleasure. Albert, Jamie, and Ian, thank you. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, what I say in a whisper... Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.